Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. In case you haven't noticed, we're in something called the Year of the Kingdom, which I am personally very jazzed about. And you may also have noticed that we've had some named Sundays that perhaps in the church you grew up in or formerly in City Church, you, you have not known. Uh, so I would like to introduce you, just in case no one ever has, to the liturgical calendar. Ah! Okay, last night when I practiced this, I hid this here because I didn't think the worship team would find it. So <laughs> the liturgical calendar is something that you have probably lived through in sundry ways over the course of your life. And you will notice this. No boxers, please. The, the first half of the year replays the story of Jesus. You can find this graphic online if you wish. Just look for Theological Horizons, the Christian year. Um, and look, you've done all that stuff before. There's Advent, which is like Jesus's gestation, I guess. And then there's Christmas, which is when he's born. And then Epiphany, which people often don't talk about, but that's his revelation as God. And then Lent, when you can't eat anything, you usually like to eat. And then Easter, which is when he comes back from the dead. And then there's the season of Pentecost. But you will notice that little line between Easter and Pentecost is a deeply unloved day in the Christian calendar called the Ascension. And what do you know? That's today. So welcome to Ascension Sunday. Um, the Ascension is um, weird. Have you ever done anything for the Ascension? No, no, you haven't. This is a photo of my favorite Ascension tradition. This is the boys' choir at St. John's College, Cambridge, where I did my first year of grad school. What you guys over here can't see is a bunch of 12-year-olds on top of a tower. And um, this is... Um, Okay, maybe not the best boys' choir in Cambridge, but it's up there. And every Ascension Day, all the kids, they climb to the top of the bell tower, which is the highest point in Cambridge, and they do a little song. And so you can see, you know, for miles. That's the only time I've ever heard anybody doing anything to celebrate the Ascension, because most of us have a disease, which a professor in seminary of mine called Ascension Deficit Disorder, which is the inability to know what to make of the ascension in any real way, shape, or form. So why don't we turn to the story of Jesus' ascension and we'll figure out what to make of it. So if you turn to the last page of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, it's probably the last paragraph in your Bible. You can go there if you like. I read the English Standard Version as I joke just because it's the best. So here's what it says. And he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, which is a town that's like the next town over from the Mount of Olives. So they go on a little day hike. And then uh, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them, his apostles. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. He floats away. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. It's so short, we might as well read it again. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Whoa. 
he leaves right when it gets good. Like he comes back from the dead, which is unforeseen and powerful, you presume. And then he spends like 40 days sort of guerrilla attacking his apostles. He shows up at times they don't see, and then he runs away. And then he takes them on a day hike and hits the up button, and away he goes. Right, right when you think he would want to stay. Like he did it all. There's no, there's, he beat death. There's nothing left to do. And, and wouldn't it be delightful if he had stayed instead of leaving us? Oh, yes, what is that question you ask? Indeed, I do have a story of being left. Christmas Eve, 2004. I think it was 2004. I said it for dramatic effect, but I was about 10. My, we did a service here at City Church, which my father officiated, and then my dad, um, wearied by pastoral work, and my mother, flustered by the demands of Christmas, both went home with two of their three children. <laughs> so then I, I wasn't terrified. I've been here a lot. If I'd been stuck in like a subway somewhere, I'd have lost my mind. But as it was, the Vospers were here, and um, I got, I think, Mrs. Vosper's cell phone. I start to call my parents. Now, if you've just done a Christmas Eve service and a parishioner is calling you, uh, you're not going to pick up. There's no, like, that person better have lost a leg between the end of the service and the calling for you to pick up that phone call. So, you know, for what it's worth, just for my family to yours, don't call us on Christmas. And uh, so my parents did not pick up the phone and they get out of the car and my mom goes, where's Peter? And my dad goes, you have him. And she goes, no, you had him. And this is totally something my father would do. It's kind of like joke that he got left behind. So the car search my mom performed delayed my rescue by like another 10 minutes, at which point they came back very apologetic that they had forgotten me on the most magical night of the year. Now that's, I, I, you know, I have other stories of being left, like when the youth group left me in the bathroom at Bodo's during a Sunday morning breakfast thing, or the time I wandered away from my school group at Bush Gardens, and I don't know what I thought was going to happen in Bush Gardens, but I was sure I was going to die. <laughs> and you surely also have had this happen to you. Um, there's a school of psychology of which, uh, that I find very helpful called attachment theory, which tells us that there are some there's some core experiences to being human, like laughing with your friends, that's nice, or doing a sunrise hike, I don't know, those are fine. But, but it's the way you live into your most kind of basic, primary, fundamental relationships. And at that point, some of the most formative experiences of our lives are about how we connect or how we disconnect from the people who loved us first. So um, I was with a friend, a couple, a couple families of friends uh, at the lake, the vaguest vacation destination ever, at the lake uh, a couple summers ago. And one of my friends wanted to pray to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues. If you have any questions about that, come back next week. But as you can imagine, when a group of friends gets together to pray for a new experience of the Spirit, it's, you know, awkward. And so you sort of small talk your way around to the moment where you ask the Lord for a new experience. And um, one of the kind of ramp up conversation topics that one friend of mine was on was just on the life of Jesus, of how Jesus comes and brings the kingdom of God and is resurrected, and then he ascends to the Father and sends the Spirit. And when my one friend said that, the other friend who asked me not to share her name said, uh, I, can't, I can't read that part. 
And I thought to myself, like, The Ascension? You can't read The Ascension. But my friend, when she was growing up, her dad um, had a series of fairly public affairs. She knew what was going on. And when she was in sixth grade, she told me one day he got in a car and he didn't come back. And she said my mom kind of checked out too. She was there, but she wasn't really a parent. And when I read that part of the story, she said, as she began to cry, I just want to chase Jesus in the car down the street, begging, beg, don't go. Please don't go. And you have to have some sympathy for that. If the point of Jesus was that finally the God who for so long had felt distant and far off comes close to us in a human body and in someone so remarkably kind who loves kids and tells the truth and knows how to see people who other people can't see when he goes, it's sometimes hard to feel anything other than abandoned. And to be perfectly honest, any boring historian of Western culture will tell you this fact deadpan. We live broadly in a culture, in a society where our art and our public discourse and our ways of relating to each other subtly, sometimes painfully, witness to this tragic sense that God is far from us. That God is maybe at the outer reaches of the universe or at the beginning of time. But God is very far from the stuff I deal with in my life and the, the stuff our society deals with. I would just like to say that if you're at City Church this morning, and I don't know, but if you are, and if your experience of Christianity this morning or often is the experience primarily of the absence of God, I would just like you to know that you are in very good company. City Church is made up, as every church is made up, of people who have their fair shares of regrets and mistakes and disappointments and the unforeseen death of their own dreams. And even so, God is God. That's what makes church so remarkable. Anybody can come in with all of our brokenness and all of our baggage and find a God who is worthy of worship. And so I just would want you to know, in case you didn't know already, that just because you have had perhaps a profound and painful sense of God's abandonment, it doesn't mean you're left out. If anything, it makes you perfectly understandable. I um, occasionally hang out with Episcopalians, and there's a group of them who wanted to make a non-cheesy movie about the New Testament. And so they went to an unloved period of New Testament history the 10 days between Ascension and Pentecost. And they wanted to make a movie about that. What would it be like to be a disciple of Jesus after he's ascended, before he sends the Spirit? And so we met up in DC, and then they said, do you want to come to Israel to like do this on set? And I'll take a free trip anywhere. So uh, I went to Israel with them, and we had a couple days just sort of sitting around basically writing a daytime soap opera. I mean, it was like, so when Jesus leaves, there's a leadership vacuum, and then Peter probably steps into that, which bothers Thomas. And then the twins are at each other's throat, and they're scared because the state killed them, so they're like hiding in a room. And, you know, we wrote this sort of like Dickensian, hyperdramatic account. And like two days in Israel, maybe, somebody noted like, hey, have you noticed though that's like not what the Bible says? point. It makes so much sense to like the 10 of us trying to tell a good story about the ascension for your viewing pleasure that it would have this kind of 
tenseness and drama. But we might as well read it a third time. I mean, it's so short. This is what Luke says. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And then they held each other, and they didn't cry because it was over. They smiled because it happened, and they rehashed their abandonment issues. And No, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Great joy! And they were continually in the temple blessing God. These look like remarkably unabandoned people. People who, when Jesus leaves, they decide to get together joyfully in holy places to worship someone who is no longer present with them. My hunch, my hunch, is that if we knew whatever it is they know or could see whatever it is they saw, that's what we would want to do too. That because Jesus is, because Jesus is ascended, we would want to come here together to worship him. So I have a very Italian mother, um, and I would say I'm an emotionally negligent traveler. So I'll go three days without letting her know that I'm not in jail or have not been abducted by pirates or something. And um, she is, is very kind. We've, we've struck a peace accord. All she really needs to know is like where I'm at and that I'm alive. And it is remarkable how when you have a sense of someone's absence or a disconnect, the questions you need to know in order to like be okay are pretty simple. Like, where are you? And what are you doing? And if you've been away a long time, are you still the same? Or the big one, like why, why did you leave? And I think the apostles, the people whom Jesus left, they've got, they've got a sense of answers to those simple questions that anybody would ask anyone. So if you would turn with me to the second chapter of Acts, you could go many places in the New Testament to find these answers. I've just picked this one, you know, to warm you up for next week. So in the second chapter of Acts, Jesus sends the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And it creates a big ruckus. And so Peter has to stand up and sort of explain to people, like, what the heaven is going on, you know. And so he stands up and he gives this sermon, and he closes the sermon the following way. So if you start in verse 32, yeah. It goes like this. This Jesus, the same Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We'll get back to that in a second. I know it's kind of odd. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Okay, so where is Jesus? Well, Peter says he's at the right hand of the Father. What is that about? This is the whole Bible in like 30 seconds. So in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. You remember that part? And then very quickly, humanity kind of botches it. And so heaven and earth gets split. And for us, heaven, heaven is oftentimes the place you go where you die. But in the Bible, it's probably more accurate to say that heaven is the place where God lives. As one professor of mine said, it is where the Lord has elect to place the divine throne. So throughout the Bible, kind of, heaven is kind of God's place, God's space. And so when Jesus ascends to heaven... He goes up to be with God. I have a meme that explains this very well. 
Kevin? Ascension Day, the day that Jesus started working from home. This is when <laughs> Jesus, I really got a kick out of this. Yeah, take that photo. I'm good. I found this all by myself. Uh, no. Uh, ascension, Jesus goes back to kind of where he's from. He goes back to the, to the Father. And the Father's in heaven being the Father over creation. And so when Jesus goes back to sit at his right hand, he is exalted as Lord and Christ. So that's where he is. And what is he doing? He's Lord and Christ. He's ruling. Jesus rules the world. Now, there's a whole other sermon about what that looks like. But when Jesus sits in this place of authority next to the Father, he rules the world. He's still doing what he always, he's announcing the kingdom of God. He's in this, he's in the same struggle he was always in to push back forces of spiritual and human darkness so that the creation would look the way it has always been intended to look. He's on a rescue mission for creation. It looks different because he's resurrected, but he's ruling the world. And that's why, Paul, that's why Peter thinks that it is fitting to take that little quote from the Psalms and put it onto Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God is still in the work of fixing the world. Just because Jesus is ascended doesn't mean that that's over. Which, by the by, answers my third question, which is, hey, are you still the same? Did you ever have camp jitters going up? You went to summer camp, and then you came back, and you were nervous you had changed, and they had changed, and no one was going to be your friend anymore. There, surely we wonder, Jesus being gone so long, are you still the way you were? And the answer is yes. Jesus is still the same personality. He still has the same sense of humor. He still loves kids. He still loves people that have been cast to the margins of society. He's the same Jesus. In fact, he still has a body. Cherith Fee is a theologian who was supposed to preach this sermon, but her husband had a procedure, and she could not be here today. And I owe her everything for this particular insight into the ascension. Jesus still has a body. He is still human. He's a glorified human. He's a resurrected human. But on the throne of God, there's a human nature. And for, that, for me, changes what I, under, what I think I'm doing when I pray. Because I, I don't go to this like vague life force that runs the world and may or may not you know, grant my wishes. I come to have a conversation with the same Jesus who has witnessed in the Gospels, who taught the apostles, who was resurrected from the dead, and who knows what it means to be human. That's who we pray to, to a God who is still knowing what it means to be human which I think also leads to the why did you leave? The Bible says routinely that if you believe in Jesus, you are in him, that phrase. If we believe in Jesus, we're a part of him. We're a part of his body. We're a part of his mission. We're a part of his life. We receive our life from his life. And if he goes to be with the Father, as Paul will say elsewhere, if his life is hidden with Christ in God, that means your life is also hidden with Christ in God. Paul has that other phrase where he says, you are Christ's and Christ's is God's. We get to be, in some sense, where Jesus is. We are also in the presence of the Father at his right hand, 
participating in his mission to keep the kingdom going and saving the world. Jesus leaves, he makes room for us so that we can be what we were always intended to be, which is a group of humans together participating in God's restoration of the world. And it's a party! Um, (laughs) So in a couple minutes... We're going to take communion, which is the, I just can't not do it. It's so funny. I love it. No shame at all, but it's hilarious. Um, when, we're going to, in a couple minutes, going to take this little snack, which if you did not get communion, uh, someone will come around and serve you in a second. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he left us this way of remembering who he was and what he did, who he is in his absence. And it's one of the most kind of normal bodily things that you can do. It's just eating a meal. And so the reminder of who Jesus is is like so near, it's in your mouth. Like you you will digest the reminder of the God who still has a body for our sake. So I'm going to invite my dad up now to officiate Uh, small moment of communion, but why don't we pray our way into that for a second? So would you pray with me? Um, Lord Jesus, we all have different experiences of what it means for you to now be with the Father. For some of us, this has been difficult and confusing. For others of us, it's been encouraging. But as we move to you in this meal now, this small symbol of a meal. We ask that you would do for us what you promised it would do. It would remind us of who you are and that we would remember you, what you did and who you've been until you come again in glory and you hand the kingdom over to the Father. We pray all of this in your own name. Amen. As we move towards taking communion together, if we could all stand. And as you're standing, if you would go ahead and take the bread out of the cup that you were given. If you have not been served, if you have not been served communion and you would like to be, we would ask that you would raise your hand high. We have people that are prepared to go ahead and move forward and give you communion. English, there's right to your right. There you go. Anyone else that would like to be served that has not been served, raise your hand. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's hold the bread up before the Lord. And let's close our eyes in God's presence. As Peter's sermon just taught us, or reminded us, that Jesus is human. And the meal that Jesus calls us to take in remembrance of him is one that reminds us again of his humanity. 
that as we hold the bread, we remember his body, his humanness that was given and broken for us. And as we hold the bread up before the Lord, we are to be reminded that the Apostle Paul also says that we should examine ourselves before we partake. If there's anything in our lives that in this moment, the presence of Jesus would call us to remember in his presence and to repent of, that we do that as we hold the bread, knowing that his body and his shed blood is greater than any sin that we could have ever done. Any way in our lives we have missed God's best, that the bread and the cup is greater than that. And there's nothing that should ever keep us from taking this communion. But let's take a moment in God's presence. Let's let the present working of the Spirit of God examine us. And if there's anything we need to repent of, we're going to take a moment. Jesus, thank you again for this bread. It reminds us again of your humanness, humanness and our humanity as well. And as we hold this bread, we acknowledge that this is the symbol of your body. And your body was broken for us. Let's eat together. Go ahead and take out the cup. The text goes on. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's hold the cup up before the Lord. Jesus, as we hold this cup, we are reminded of your humanness again. That you had a body in which there was blood just like us. But in this moment, we rejoice together and we remember again that your blood was shed, not only for the covering of our sins, but the eternal removal of them. And so we acknowledge the new covenant that's found in you through your broken body and through your shed blood. So Jesus, thank you for humanity and thank you for where you are now at the right hand of the Father, ever interceding for us and ruling and reigning over this world until that day when all things will be made new and heaven and earth again will come together. But until that day, we eat this bread and we drink this cup, remembering your death until you return as king. Let's drink together.
Can we take a moment in God's presence to open up our hearts and close our eyes? Then we're going to take a moment of worship. But if you're here and you feel as though you would like to come forward and pray by yourself to kneel up front on these steps, we at times call it the altar area. If you would like to come forward, if you sense the Spirit of the Lord has touched you and you would like to take a step towards the Lord, we ask or and invite you to do that. Please feel comfortable to do that. The worship team will now lead us in worship. But again, let's take a moment and be focused on Jesus. Again, if you feel as though you need to step forward and put feet to your faith and take a moment, just you and the Lord, we encourage you to do that now. Let's worship together.